Hello, it's Tuesday, October the 3rd, and you're listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me in studio today here on the Stanford University campus, Dr. John Kogan. He is the Leonard and Shirley Eli Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and a faculty member in Stanford's public policy program. Dr. Kogan is a renowned domestic policy expert. Good luck finding someone with more working knowledge about budget, fiscal policy, and health care. He has a new book out. It's titled The High Cost of Good Intentions, A History of U.S. Federal Entitlement Programs. And that's the topic of today's podcast. In an age of debt and deficits, how do we get to this point on entitlements? John Kogan, if you worked at Amazon.com and had to categorize your book, where does it go? Government, (laughs) comedy, or tragedy? (laughs) Uh, Mostly tragedy, uh, but let's call it political history. Political history, very good. So before we get into book, uh, just a quick question. How does John Kogan become John Kogan? How does a young man gravitate toward the world of budget and domestic policy? Well, I actually had very little interest in in budgets during the first part of my career, which was at the Rand Corporation and at Stanford. And then I joined the Reagan administration in 1981. Uh, In 1983, I went over to OMB and saw for the first time um, all of the forces that were at work in creating uh, pressures for the expansion of entitlements. And I saw the difficulty uh, government officials faced in trying to rein in those entitlements. So that was quite an awakening for me. So that's how I got interested in budgets. And you did Washington. You did the Washington tour once, but you resisted the urge to return. Yes, yes. I was able to get out without getting indicted (laughs) and didn't want to risk it again. Having to lawyer up. (laughs) Right. All right, let's talk about the book. Uh, So I read it over the weekend, and uh, I encourage everyone to go out there and go into Amazon.com and get it. It is a very easy read when it comes to budgets. You might think this might be a very thick topic, but John Kogan does a very good job of walking you through a timeline of American history and American budgets. My first surprise, John, is I thought the book was probably going to focus on Franklin Roosevelt moving forward, because when I think about entitlements, I think Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, I think about the New Deal, I think about the Great Society, I think about modern times. But you walk entitlements not back to the Great, to the New Deal, you walk it not just back to the First World War or the Civil War, you walk it all the way back to the very beginning of the United States of America, to really the Constitution. Oh, that's right. The, um, uh, the genesis of the book was, um, uh, as, as I've said, I've been interested in entitlements and the problems they create for society uh, and for our fiscal future uh, since the uh, early 1980s. But then I went back and was researching Civil War uh, pension programs, and I saw then that the, uh, the process of the expansion of entitlements back then was very much the same as with Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the New Deal, and the Great Society uh, entitlement programs. I thought, how remarkable is that? Is this unique uh, to the 19th century? So then I went back even further to the Revolutionary War, the first uh, U.S. federal entitlement program, and found exactly the same expansionary pattern that we see in 20th century uh, century entitlements. And the first entitlement is aid to soldiers in the war. That's right. Uh, Revolutionary War pensions, and they were paid to... Revolutionary War soldiers who were disabled uh, as a result of combat uh, during the Revolutionary War. All right. Uh, so in the book, you uh, mentioned uh, that pensions in the early 1800s are a whopping 1% of the federal budget. <laughs> That's right. Uh, if you look at the expansion over time in the Revolutionary War pension program, it's, it's really remarkable. The pension program started out covering only veterans who were disabled 
during their service to the country in the War of Independence, uh, and who were members of the Continental Army and Navy. Within 15 or 20 years, Congress then expanded uh, that entitlement to soldiers who had been injured during wartime service, but who had served in the militia, mm -hmm. state militia, on the ground that they were no less worthy of receiving federal assistance than soldiers of the Continental Army. They had bled just as much, they had been injured just as severely, and there was no grounds for distinguishing their claim from the claim of Continental Army uh, soldiers. Right. The, the, the 1818 pension law, John, why is that a cautionary tale? So it's a, it's a very good example of how entitlements expand. In 1818, the government was experiencing a very large budget surplus. I think the surplus revenues were about 60% uh, greater than the expenditures. Uh, and Congress, having surplus funds around, expanded the entitlement to uh, Revolutionary War pensions to uh, soldiers who had been disabled, but not in consequence of the wartime service that they engaged in. They had become disabled in the years since. Uh, and so it was another expansion when funds were available, another expansion of the uh, pension program. All right, uh, let's fast forward now a little bit and let's go to the middle of the 19th century and what you call the first great entitlement. Well, the first great entitlement would be the Civil War Pension Program. And as, as uh, important as the Revolutionary War Pension Program was, Civil War pensions are the dominant government expenditure and the grandest entitlement of the 19th century. By the 1890s, Civil War pensions constituted about 40% of federal spending. Now that's 35 years after the Civil War had ended. Right. In the 1890s, nearly a million people were receiving Civil War pensions. Now, seven or eight years after the Civil War had ended in the 1870s, only about 8,000 individuals were receiving Civil War pensions. So we saw this enormous growth in between the 1870s and the 1890s in, the, uh, uh, in eligibility uh, for these pensions. And it was following exactly the same type of pattern that we saw with the Revolutionary War pensions. Right, and enter into this a most unlikely hero, somebody who is hardly in the pantheon of American presidents, somebody whose face is not on Mount Rushmore, Grover Cleveland. And John, what is the phrase 228 rounds of ammunition? <laughs> well, Grover Cleveland uh, came into office, he was the first Democrat to be elected president since the Civil War. Right, so there been a run of Republicans from Lincoln through, I think, Rutherford Hayes, mm -hmm. or Garf Garfield uh, and Arthur. And, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. right. And so in 1884, um, the country elected its first Democratic president, Grover Cleveland. Uh, Grover Cleveland was a fiscal conservative and a very courageous man. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the pension uh, program was about a third of federal spending. And so uh, there have been reports about abuses in the program, about, uh, I think a report about four years before had pointed out that 25% of pensioners on the rolls were on the rolls for fraudulent reasons. Mm -hmm. And so he established his goal of reining in this pension program as a means of being a fiscal conservative. 
And so he began vetoing individual pension bills called private relief bills. These were bills that would provide a pension to a single individual. And Congress was passing hundreds of these bills each session. And so Grover Cleveland set his sights on those bills, and he vetoed in his first term 228 of those bills, a record for any president. And of course, uh, those vetoes became campaign fodder uh, that the Republican Benjamin Harrison used against him uh, when Cleveland ran for re-election in 1888. And what happens in 1888? And so uh, Benjamin Harris, uh, with a with a broad support from, uh, from Civil War pensioners and from the major lobby of the time, the Grand Army of the Republic, right. uh, helps him uh, get uh, reelected. You know, the Grand Army of the Republic is an interesting example of how uh, the forces uh, that entitlements create can affect the electoral outcome. The Grand Army of the Pro Republic had been a um, kind of a... Uh, a, a help organization for Civil War veterans right after the war. But after Congress expanded the pension program significantly, they turned their sights to becoming a lobby for further pension expansions. They then joined together with the Republican Party uh, to advocate higher and broader uh, pension coverage and were largely uh, successful. But the Grand Army of the Republic of the 19th century was just as powerful as the AARP is today. So sort of a military 19th century version of AARP, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's very good. All right, let's fast forward again, and let's move now into the early part of the 20th century, John, and something which I learned from your book, Woodrow Wilson, Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover, Franklin Roosevelt, five guys with very little in common other than sitting in the Oval Office. They all share one thing in common. They all oppose bonus legislation. That's correct. Walk us through, John, what is going on in America after World War One. It's an interesting conflict, I find. You have um, hundreds of thousands of troops coming home from an overseas war. There's a question of how to treat these gentlemen fairly, ultimately it manifests in the early 1930s with the bonus army tragedy in Washington. At the same time, Washington is flush in money. The country is just absolutely spitting out revenue, and they have more money than they know what to do with. So what is the approach to pensions and bonus legislations in the 20s? Well, it's a very good question. Even as late as the 1920s, early 1920s, the Civil War pension program was still a very large program. Congress was fully aware at the time of its excesses. Right. And uh, they were bound and determined not to repeat the mistakes of the past at least initially. But within a few years, they started uh, repeating the mistakes of the past. First, there was a bonus bill that provided a benefit for all returning uh, GI veterans from World War I in 1924. Uh, uh, finally, they passed the bill over Calvin Coolidge's veto. Harding had also vetoed a uh, similar bill. Um, uh, so the, the effort began almost immediately after the war to expand the pensions. By 1930, now the Depression was just beginning in 1930, but the right. budget was still in surplus. And so Congress pushed through a, an expansion of the World War I pension program, expanding benefits to soldiers who were now disabled, but had not been disabled as a consequence of their wartime service. So when Franklin Roosevelt came into office, as we know by that point, uh, the country was uh, in a deep recession. 
uh, that was going to eventually turn into a depression. The budget was incurring the largest peacetime deficits it had ever occurred. Roosevelt of 1932 and 1933 followed a fiscal orthodoxy of the time, which was budget deficits were bad for the economy. At the time, uh, pension benefits were about 25% of the federal budget. So in order to bring the budget under control, Roosevelt had to take on the veterans uh, pension program. So he attacks the sacred cow. He goes after it. He goes after it. And what happens? Uh, Congress gives him an extraordinary bill to sign within three weeks of his taking office in 1933. The bill repeals virtually all entitlement programs for veterans' pensions and gives Roosevelt the authority to determine benefit levels and to rewrite the eligibility rules. He does so, and within his first year in office, he knocks about 50% of all of the veterans that were on the rolls off the rolls. Right. And uh, for the rest of his term in office, he hung on to, to those reductions that he had gotten. John, the title of that bill was, quote, an act to maintain the credit of the United States government. <laughs> no, no one could come up with a catchier title. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's right. But that's what it did. It saved the credit of the United States. That's exactly right. Okay. So Franklin Roosevelt, John, I find him to be a very complex character because on the one hand, give him credit. He is going after pension benefits. He's recognizing this problem we have, this, this fundamental structural problem we have in the federal budget. On the other hand, the FDR of 1932-1933 gives way to a different FDR, Cub 1934-1935, the FDR who wants to give birth to welfare, to elderly benefits, to Social Security federal matching programs, to unemployment insurance. What is Franklin Roosevelt's thinking here? So Roosevelt clearly underwent a change between 1933 and, and 1935, uh, and historians will debate just how much that, that change was. Uh, but it was certainly profound to go from uh, uh, reducing the veterans' pension rolls by uh, 50% to launching the modern uh, entitlement state. But one thing I would say about Roosevelt, when you look at his uh, messages and his speeches on the subject, uh, I would say that his initiatives, just like the later initiatives of Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, um, were born of good intentions. Right. Uh, the idea of a safety net for uh, people who were impoverished through no fault of their own, the idea of having a measure of economic security against old age poverty, those were well-intentioned programs. And of course, what Roosevelt failed to recognize, and I think the New Deal failed to recognize, is that the same forces that had operated on 19th century veterans' pensions would operate on the modern entitlements for Social Security, unemployment insurance, and, and welfare. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that they didn't realize uh, the consequences of what they were setting in motion or didn't put in place necessary checks to combat those, those forces. John, what is the Hamilton story view of federal funding? So Hamilton's view was that the federal government had the authority to spend to promote the general welfare. But in Hamilton's view, the general welfare was confined to projects and activities that were in the national as opposed to local interest. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. 
And the other thing which FDR opens the gates to is Supreme Court stepping in and ruling on the constitutionality of these programs. That's right. That's right. The interesting thing about the New Deal from an entitlement perspective is you think about 19th century entitlements. They were confined to individuals that had performed some service to their government, mainly veterans and mainly wartime veterans. But the consequence of the New Deal was for entitlements was to open up eligibility for entitlements to individuals in the general population that had done no particular service for their country. They were just over age 65, or they were unemployed, or they were on welfare. And the Supreme Court gave the government, if you will, uh, that authority by approving the Social Security Act on the grounds that it was an act to promote the general welfare. Right. Uh, one other thing I learned from the book, John, everyone knows about the Great Society, but you write about the Second Great Society. And what is the Second Great Society? Well, everyone knows that Lyndon Johnson was a uh, probably the most expansionary president, uh, uh, certainly since World War II. Right. What they don't know is that Richard Nixon was every bit as expansionary, especially when it comes to entitlement programs. Sure, LBJ was responsible for Medicare and Medicaid and the food stamp program, but, Lyndon, but uh, uh, Richard Nixon uh, was responsible for expanding welfare to a federal program by making food stamps a national program. He created the supplemental security income program. He attempted to um, have a national health insurance program uh, preceding uh, Barack Obama. Uh, and he had the most extensive expansion proposed for welfare uh, in, in the country's history. Uh, and uh, Congress did not go along with his national health insurance plan. Congress did not go along with his welfare reform plan. Uh, but nevertheless, the entitlements that were enacted during Nixon's administration and the expansion of existing entitlements during the Nixon administration makes him uh, just about on a par with, uh, with LBJ. Okay, so I've noticed three constants here as we've marched through the past couple centuries of American history. Number one, these all seem like terribly great ideas when we have the money to spend. Second constant is in terms especially of, say, Social Security and Medicare. These sound like great ideas, but one thing which is not kept in mind is people are living increasingly longer. For example, Social Security created a system in, 19, in the early 19, middle 1930s about Social Security for people getting after the mid-60s, well, that's when life expectancy was, so they're not going to get very long, but now life expectancy exceeds more than two gates, decades after Social Security. And then the third constant, John, rarely does anybody want to be the bad guy in this conversation. That's right. It's very, once an entitlement is granted, it's very, very difficult uh, to take that entitlement away, and I think we're seeing that uh, today with the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare as it's called. Uh, it's uh, Republicans have promised for seven years right. uh, to take it away, and uh, so far, so far, uh, they've been unable, unable to do so. Let's get into that by talking about what a young John Kogan encounters when he goes to Washington, D.C. So you go to D.C. in 1981, and you work in the Labor Department for a couple of years. That's correct. George Schultz was once a Labor Secretary. After two years, you switch over to OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, which does the, the writing of the budget. What do you encounter in the early 1980s, John? This, to me, is an interesting time as a, as a policy nerd because why? First of all, the budget 
It's not even a trillion dollars yet, so it's not today's budget by any means. And there's actually conversations going on in Washington in terms of attacking spending, in terms of fixing Social Security. There's an opportunity there to do some things. Well, that's right. Uh, when Ronald Reagan took office in 1981, the country was experiencing, I'm sure your listeners know, double-digit inflation, right. interest rates up on the order of 20%. Uh, the economists had said you couldn't have rising unemployment and uh, rising prices at the same time, and that's exactly what we had. So I think there was this widespread acceptance uh, in Washington uh, and around the country uh, about the need to restrain federal spending uh, as part of any comprehensive economic program to rid the country of its inflation to get the unemployment rate and interest rates down. So Ronald Reagan, more than any other president, uh, proposed and uh, was successful in enacting uh, comprehensive entitlement reform. Uh, in the end, when we look at it, uh, he was successful in slowing the growth of entitlements, but uh, there was maybe one or two entitlements that were effectively done away with. Um, uh, so uh, being able to uh, if you will cut the program out by its roots, uh, he was not successful. Uh, but uh, but he did trim trim these entitlements back in a comprehensive way. Okay. Uh, in presidency since, two opportunities strike me. One, Bill Clinton in 1995 and 1996, he is running John for his political life. The Republicans have taken over Congress. Newt Gingrich is now the most powerful person in Washington. He's on the cover of Time magazine. Bill Clinton is out saying the president is still relevant. He's in a weak position. And he wants to make deals. He wants to get reelected. Right. It seems to me, John, there is a moment there where perhaps Republicans could have jumped in an entitlement reform. And then the opportunity would have been during the second Bush president, Bush 43, to have again brought this up. He did put forward Social Security reform. But I don't want to call it half-hearted, but the timing wasn't very good. And there really wasn't the muscle put behind it either. Yeah, so I, I do think there's a, with respect to Bill Clinton, um, uh, there was an opportunity, I think, a significant opportunity, both uh, on Social Security uh, and on welfare. And he was successful on welfare with the Republican Congress. Right. Uh, he was not successful on, on Social Security. Um, uh, George W. Bush, I, th I thought his proposal was sound. I thought it was well-timed. I thought it was a good solution, partial solution, to the long-term Social Security problem. But I think Congress had gotten used to using surplus Social Security revenues for other purposes. And George W. Bush was saying, let's use those surplus revenues to help individuals finance personal Social Security accounts. Uh, Congress was unwilling to give up uh, those surplus funds uh, for that purpose. Uh, and, and I think more than anything else, it was the unwillingness of both Republicans and Democrats uh, to, um, uh, to give up using those surplus funds for non-Social Security surplus purposes uh, that led to the failure of the President Bush's initiative. Okay. Somebody running for president in 2016, John, did try to be the bad guy. Chris Christie. <laughs> Remember, he ran for That's president. Right. <laughs> Chris Christie, in April of 2015, John, goes to New Hampshire. He is trying to jumpstart a campaign. He is not formally declared yet, but he's trying to, like Bill Clinton, be relevant. He wants to get into the race. And so he decides, I'm going to be the guy who tells you how it is about Washington. So he goes to New Hampshire, John, and he gives a speech. And here's what he says about politicians in Washington. He says they are, quote, afraid to have an honest conversation about Social Security, Medicare, 
and Medicaid with the people of our country. I, Chris Christie, am not. He then unveils a plan to change Medicare and Medicaid. I don't know if you had a chance to review it or not. He said he wants to gradually raise Social Security and Medicare eligibility to age 69. You're nodding your head. I don't know if you agree mm -hmm. with that or not. We can talk about the merits of that. He said he wants to implement means testing and eliminate Social Security for people making over $200,000 a year. Interesting idea. And his reward for his honesty? John, he gets 7% of the vote <laughs> in New Hampshire, and he's out of the race the following day. Jeb Bush, somebody who I think you have talked to over the years and perhaps advised yes. and helped. Jeb Bush, like Chris Christie, wants to fiddle with Social Security retirement age. He's talked about it for years. He doesn't make it past the South Carolina primary. <laughs> Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz wants to play to the Tea Party crowd, John. He wants to take things a step further. He wants to curb inflation increases in benefits. Also says he is in favor of revisiting the Bush plan on privatizing Social Security. Cruz makes it all the way to May. <laughs> who does win the nomination? Donald Trump who tells an audience in Iowa this in 2015, quote, I'll probably be the only Republican that doesn't want to cut Social Security. I want to make the country rich so that Social Security can be afforded and Medicare and Medicaid. Get rid of the waste, get rid of the fraud, but you deserve your Social Security. You know, maybe we needed one more candidate in the race, Bill. We needed a great, great grandson or daughter of Grover Cleveland. <laughs> All right. And who is Donald Trump's opponent in November 2016? Hillary Clinton, who a year before the election, John proposes not just cutting Social Security, but expanding Social Security benefits for those caring for elderly, relevant, elderly relatives. Uh, she frames it as an extension of the Affordable Care Act. So the voters of America in November 2016, John, have a choice between one candidate who wants to expand Social Security in other words, is not in favor of any kind of entitlement reform. And a Republican who has said that he's dead set against touching entitlements. <laughs> what to do? What to do is right. The, all, of that, uh, all of that evidence that, that you just presented is spot on. And it's indicative of uh, a fact that today in society, individuals, voters, don't have a clear understanding of the magnitude of the fiscal challenge that we have and the consequences if we fail to do anything about it. When I mentioned Roosevelt and when I mentioned Reagan uh, and their efforts to cut, successful efforts uh, to cut entitlement programs, um, at the time for each of them there was a consensus in the population that something needed to be done. We don't have that consensus right now, and I think that explains why Chris Christie struck out, Jeb Bush struck out, and the list goes on. The evidence uh, of, uh, is all around us that the public doesn't quite have a firm grasp yet of the fiscal consequences of failing to act. Now, somebody who does, I think, is House Speaker Paul Ryan, and the phrase that he likes to say is he will not, quote, give up the dream. Mm -hmm. But, John, what is the dream? <laughs> the dream should be uh, to make these well-intentioned entitlement programs uh, affordable. Uh, right now, they're not affordable. Right now, they've gone completely out of control. A few statistics for your listeners should help in, in, in uh, making them sort of understand just how the entitlement system that we started out with that was going to provide a safety net of assistance for individuals who are impoverished through no fault of their own. We're going to provide economic security against uh, old age poverty. Um, now, that entitlement system, this is just the federal entitlement system, uh, now uh, provides benefits to uh, 50 
5% of the U.S. population. That is 55% of the U.S. population lives in households that are receiving at least one federal entitlement. Does that include Obamacare, John? Do you, do you qualify Obamacare as an entitlement? Uh, the subsidies certainly are an entitlement. Yeah. Yes, yes, they would be. Um, if you go further on this, on down this road of, of just how expansive entitlements are, mm-hmm. six out of every ten children in America are now growing up in a household that's receiving at least one entitlement program. Sixty percent of all entitlement recipients are in households that are in the upper half of the income distribution. Only 20% of it, all entitlement assistance goes to actually alleviating poverty. So that system that was originally designed to deal with old age poverty and impoverished individuals who were in this uh, destitute state through no fault of their own has morphed into this incredible spending machine where each month we transfer hundreds of billions of dollars from one, from one group in society uh, uh, to another. So when people come to understand just how large, how inefficient, how costly the entitlement system is and how much more costly it's going to be within 10 years, I think then we'll start seeing a, a change in the, um, the message of politicians. Uh, but that's the key you just said, within 10 years. So the Medicaid trust fund becomes insolvent in 2028. Medicare, yes. Medicare, excuse me, Social Security in 2034. Right. John, there's no urgency here. If you're if you're Congressman Kogan and you don't have advanced degrees in government, right. you don't sit and worry about these things and write books about it, you just happy-go-lucky go along, John Kogan, worrying about his re-election, you're thinking that's a... That's a down-the-road problem. Well, uh, as it turns out, Bill, it's not. Um, okay. Social Security is already contributing to the federal budget deficit. How so? So it's taking in less money in payroll tax revenues mm-hmm. than it is expending on benefits to individuals. That difference has to come from somewhere, and where it comes from is federal borrowing. So Social Security now is starting to contribute to increases in the national debt, and Medicare is not far behind at all. In the next five years, the deficit, which this year is around $650 billion, in five years, because of the growing entitlements, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security in particular, the budget deficit is going to rise to $1 trillion a year. And that's if we don't have an economic recession. And to put it in context, in that, trillion, that, that trillion dollar deficit, that's larger than the entire budget that younger John Kogan wrestled with in the early 1980s. <laughs> that's exactly right. Let me give you another stat uh, for um, the next 10 years. So just to make sure that your, your listeners really understand that we can't wait to begin to tackle this problem. Mm-hmm. In 10 years, entitlement spending plus interest on the public debt will exceed all of the tax revenues that the federal government collects to finance the government. Therefore, in order to spend a dollar on defense, the federal government has to rely on borrowing. In order to finance the 
Center for Disease Control, the NIH, NASA, all of the agencies of government. There's no tax revenues available for those uh, either. And so that's within 10 years. And so we can't wait. Social Security and Medicare are part of our deficit problem from this point going forward. Okay, let's get to the portion of the show that I like to call king for a day. (laughs) You can't solve the political problem in Washington, which is getting bipartisan consensus because the history of this matter shows Republicans and Democrats have to buy into doing this. Republicans will not sign off it knowing that Democrats are going to machete them in the next election. Democrats, vice versa, will not sign off unless there are concessions from Republicans. So let's let's put the politics aside. Mm -hmm. Let's just talk about, John, about what the right approach is. If you're doing the Rx, the remedy for entitlement reform, tell me where you start. What are, what are sort of the must-haves in your plan? Well, the must-haves is you got to go where the money is. And where the money is, is Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Right. Um, those are the big, big entitlements. Uh, the more welfare entitlements like food stamps and supplemental security income, they have uh, uh, bad incentive effects associated with them, so you've got to deal with them carefully. You've got to constrain their growth, right. but they're not really part of the fiscal problem that we face. So you've got to go where the money is. So I assume you're talking three elements here. One is going to be means testing, which might be popular. The second is going to be eligibility, long means testing, but maybe raising age limits. And then the third one, the T word. Our tax is part of the plan, John. Do you have to raise, say, payroll taxes on Social Security? You know, I think it would be a mistake to think mistake about to taxes to start with. Okay. The reason that we need to restrain entitlements is that if we don't, then we're going to have an enormous increase in taxes. And so it would be a mistake to start with increases in taxes. And so I would say you, got, you have to reduce the growth in entitlement spending as much as you can And then you have to enact a set of pro-growth economic policies, which might include changing the tax code so that tax rates are lower than they are today, regulatory reform, and restraining the rest of the budget. Those three ingredients are essential to getting strong economic growth. And over time, the strong economic growth is going to help us meet some of that tax burden or that uh, entitlement burden uh, that the country is going to face. So when people talk about tax, uh, talk about entitlement reform, mm-hmm. I think it's important to talk about the details, what one would do. Right. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that maybe the most important uh, policy or set of policies that we can adopt to enable us to afford the entitlements uh, and to make individuals less reliant on those entitlements is to get a pro-growth economic plan in place. Right, so tax reform currently is in play on Capitol Hill. It's probably skating on thin ice, but at least it's in play. What would you like to see in tax reform, John, that could then segue, could complement entitlement reform? So I see lower lowering the rates and broadening the base. It's a it's economics old wine, if you will. We've been preaching it for decades and decades. Economists from both the left and the right agree that that's the right structure. If you Taxes are a necessary evil. Uh, Taxes in and of themselves harm the economy. And so you want to raise the revenues to finance government in the most efficient way as possible. And the most efficient way possible is by having a broad base and lower, uh, lower tax rates as low as possible. 
I'm not suggesting you should be Paul Revere, John, and go to Washington and ride a horse, <laughs> but have you thought about maybe slipping the book under about 535 doors in Washington? <laughs> well, yes, I yes I have. You know, I, I my hope is that someone, uh, some uh, person who really cares about the future of the country will buy a 535 copies and deliver them to the House and the Senate for Christmas. <laughs> maybe 538. You'd want to give one to the president, the vice president, Mick Mulvaney. Fair enough. You've studied OMB and Mulvaney. He's actually been out to Hoover. How do you make of his job? How's he doing so far? I think he's doing a great job. He's got a very, very good message. Uh, uh, he's a very sharp um, uh, man. He not only knows policy, um, but he knows how Congress works, which is essential uh, to getting uh, things done. The most successful budget directors uh, in in history have been those that really understand the Congress as well as the substance of policy, and Mick Mulvaney is one of those guys. Let me close out with a couple of questions, John. This is a very, very big what if and a lot of, lot of crazy scenarios down the road. But what if in a world where Donald Trump runs for re-election and incredibly enough gets reelected. <laughs> he is now looking at a second term in 2021. And let's also presuppose that he has a Republican Congress still to deal with, even though the recent history of president shows that presidents inherit a Congress of their same party and promptly lose it. But let's say Trump comes back in 2021 looking at a second term, a blank slate, if you will. How do you sell entitlement reform to a president who is reluctant to do entitlement reform? Because again, John, here is a window of opportunity. Mm -hmm. A guy with a second term in his own party to play with, and he could get into this matter, and he could do it very responsibly saying, this is the big issue of this decade and beyond. Well, I think he's got to recognize that uh, the original goals of these programs are worthy goals, and they're worth preserving. Good intentions. Good intentions. And you've, he's got to be convinced that changes can be made to return those programs to those to programs that are are, are um, uh, consistent with those goals and, and eliminate the excess, I also think as 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 we've said before, Bill, uh, he, when he comes back into office, if he were to be reelected, he's going to be facing a trillion dollar deficit. Right. Uh, that's a trillion dollars added to the national debt each year growing, and within seven or eight years after that, uh, the national debt will. Uh, break through 100% of GDP. Uh, that uh, should uh, uh, be an imperative uh, for the next president, whether it's Donald Trump right. or whoever it is, uh, to take on these entitlements. So to the old joke that a conservative is a liberal has been mugged by reality, I think, like, <laughs> Church, I think Churchill said that. Uh, maybe the hope is that Donald Trump is a president who gets mugged by budget and economic reality. Reality, there you go. Well, John, should we go to Buffalo and try to find some ancestor of Grover Cleveland? I think he was a mayor of Buffalo at one point. So <laughs> That's right, he yeah, was. Yes. Okay. The book is a terrific read. How long did it take you to write it, John? I'm embarrassed to say, Bill. Uh, <laughs> actually, I started working on this probably about four and a half years ago. And as I said, it was really on the, I was working on the Civil War pension program at the time. And so books evolve. Uh, they start with one purpose, and then they evolve into something else. And that's the way this, this uh, book went. It started at a fairly narrow uh, objective and then uh, grew into a, a broader objective that, that I hope your listeners will find uh, interesting. And anybody else here at Hoover you'd like to thank for their help in the book? The whole team. This is a great institution. It's a, a wonderful place uh, to do research. Uh, you have a level of uh, academic freedom uh, that uh, I know of, uh, that, that I don't know uh, happens in any other place. It's really quite remarkable. 
Thank you. John Kogan, thanks for stopping by today. All right. Thank you, Bill. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy choices confronting America's 45th president. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you would mind, please tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which sends the best work of Hoover Fellows, most certainly including John Kogan, straight to your inbox weekdays. You can also find the Hoover Institution on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. John Kogan, John Kogan, sorry. <laughs> John Cougar Mellencamp. John Kogan is most certainly not on Twitter and proud of that, I think. But that shouldn't stop you from going online to purchase The High Cost of Good Intentions, a history of U.S. federal entitlement programs. I've linked it on my Twitter account if you want to go find it. Please buy 538 copies and spread them around Washington. John, it is a great book and must read for anyone who wants to understand how a nation with a history of good heart has a hard time thinking about it. Congratulations on the writing. Well, Bill, thank you very much. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.